0: and welcome to Poll Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Poll Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello, it's Tuesday, September the 6th, and welcome to Poll Position, the Hoover Institution's ongoing look at the 2016 election, now just 63 days away. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow, Joining me today, a duo of Stanford University political scientists, Hoover Senior Fellow Mo Fiorina, and David Brady, the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at Hoover. Gentlemen, Labor Day is now in the rearview mirror, and what does recent history tell us about the presidential election? In 2012, Mitt Romney pulled into a tie with Barack Obama per the Real Clear Politics average, but Obama retook the lead literally the day after the holiday. In 2008, Obama came into Labor Day with a five-point lead over John McCain. McCain briefly took over after a bounce from his convention, which started on Labor Day, but Obama retook the lead for good just two weeks later. In 2004, George W. Bush took the lead for good at the end of August. By Labor Day, he'd opened up a six-point lead over John Kerry, and he didn't look back. There are, however, exceptions to the rule. In 2000, Al Gore opened September with a three-point lead. That was per Gallup's numbers, not real political politics average. He went on to win the popular vote, but as we know, lose the election. And in 2000, Ronald Reagan trailed Jimmy Carter by four points in Gallup's poll going into September. He ended up winning the election by 10 points. You meant 1980. 1980. Oh, excuse me, 2000. Excuse 2000, me, mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan. So the real clear politics average of this morning, Bill Clinton, 46 point, excuse me, uh, Hillary Clinton. 40 <laughs> slip. Hillary Clinton, 46.1%. Donald Trump, 42.1%. These are for polls from August the 22nd through September the 4th. Gentlemen, is the election baked?
1: Well, I, I don't think so. Uh, in the latest latest YouGov uh, poll, we have uh, a really large number of voters who say they're voting for other candidates, they're undecided, or say they won't vote. It's uh, actually close to 30, around 30%. So, that, so th- it seems to me there are a lot of people who are Undecided, much higher than in the past. When I, if in 2012, how did Barack Obama win? He won by virtue of the fact that he held the Democrats and Romney held the Republicans, Mm. but there was about a five point, five to six point Democratic advantage, and Romney did win the independents, 52 percent or so, but uh, didn't win big enough to win the election. When I look at the, uh, our latest results, uh, Mrs. Clinton has not has not uh, settled a deal with Democrats. Among Democrats, we only have uh, we have 73% of Democrats saying they'll vote for her, 6% saying they'll vote for a uh, uh, 6% uh, saying they'll vote for Donald Trump, and uh, the rest saying they're uncertain, won't vote, etc. Right. Whereas uh, among Republicans, Trump is 77% will vote for him, only 3% will vote for Hillary, but a lot of undecideds uh, among Republicans, too. And among independents, it's uh, pretty close, 29-31, but again, a lot of undecided, particularly among independents. So it's 2016, Hillary doesn't have 90% of the Democrats, Romney doesn't have 90% of the Republicans, and so there's still a lot of undecidedness out there. Uh, the main thing going for Ms. Clinton at this point is the Democrats have about a nine point lead in terms of party identification, and the number of independents is uh, up though when you take into account leaning uh, Democrats and leaning Republicans, uh, there are a few more independents leaning Democrat than leaning Republican which uh, which will make a difference in the election. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's fair to say that there's probably more potential volatility in this election than at any time since 1992. And in part for the same reasons. Uh, in 1992, you had Bill Clinton, who was really a different sort of Democrat from what the Democrats had been running for the previous three or four elections, a, a Southern conservative, uh, at least he ran that way. And, of course, you had Ron Perot, who didn't really fit any mold. And this time around, we have Trump, who really doesn't fit any kind of mold. And when you give people different choices, uh, they sort of s- step out of their usual patterns. And so I think the uh, the amount of volatility we're seeing, uh, the potential 30 percent at this point, is very high for recent elections. Um, I think there could be surprises yet uh, during this campaign.
0: When you say 30 percent, what is the statistic norm in a presidential election, 10, 15
2: percent? In recent elections, it's been low like that, mm-hmm. 10 to 15 percent. Uh, this So we're running about twice what we normally are. With Gary Johnson is doing quite well for a third-party candidate, the best since uh, since Perot. And uh, just uh, the parties, even the fact that neither neither candidate has wrapped up 90% of their own party yet. In 2012,
1: when the election was all over, uh, third-party candidates got less than 2% of the vote. Mm-hmm. And in our recent one, we have um, Johnson uh, running at about 8 nine Hillary uh, or rather uh, Jill Stein running at three or four percent, other candidates running at one to two, and uh, a large number saying they won't vote uh, won't vote for president. So th- those numbers are're really big, and I think it, it, it reflects on uh, two candidates. Ms. Clinton had a really bad week because of the FBI, so on and so forth. The, r- the result was uh, the polls got closer, As right. uh, so the attention goes back to Donald Trump, if it does at some point, then I expect Mrs. Clinton will do better. But both of these candidates are uh, really unpopular.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. If you go to the Real Clear Politics page and go on to the section they have for the horse race between uh, Clinton and Trump, and they do the RCP average, they have a little tab button you can slide at the bottom, and you can go back and track the timeline. And I took it back to the end of July after the two parties that had their respective national conventions, and what you found was that Trump was up by one point. And then I slid it forward about 10 days, 14 days, when Trump just went off the deep end and, well, he was Trump for two weeks, and suddenly it was about an eight to nine point race in her favor, and then I slid it forward to present, and now it's about a four point race, and what you see is they converged at about the national conventions. He's a little ahead, then he just goes way down uh, in early August, and then he slowly creeps up in August, and her numbers drop in August. There seems to be one common denominator here, and that's whoever is in the news whoever is driving the news in a decidedly negative way him with the insult fest or her with the questions of her candor and her and her honesty and her integrity and that's i don't know do you guys think we're in store for nine more weeks
2: of this i'm afraid so <laughs>
0: uh,
1: yeah i well i don't i don't think uh, I don't think the full. Nine, I don't think that there. Uh, I don't think 30 percent of the voters are going to make up their mind the last week. No, no. But uh, we are. Uh, it, it's going to be an extended time period compared to the past, because I think there are a lot of these voters that are uh, making up their mind and deciding. Right. In uh, a YouGov poll uh, uh, two weeks ago, we we at, we specifically took people who said they're voting for a third-party candidate vote the, uh, would not vote or they were undecided about who to vote for. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the 30 uh, percent Mo just mentioned. And we, we asked the follow-up question, you know, who would you prefer to be president? Uh, trying to get them to force them to vote. And that was 3228 for Mrs. Clinton, mm-hmm. but it uh, was amazing that forty percent still would not say, Uh, just wouldn't say Uh, they preferred either one of them and when I looked at the difference between the 60% who would make a choice reluctantly versus the 40 who wouldn't uh, the major difference was the 40% really don't like Clinton and they really don't like Trump. Mrs. Clinton the two descriptions the first descriptions for most of the response there were she's a liar and untrustworthy and and Trump is a uh, narcissistic bully those, I mean, those are the kind of comments that drove it. So I don't see though that 40%. I don't know what it takes to get them to say they're going to vote. They, they just may not vote.
2: It's hard to see, given those numbers, uh, how anybody could run a more positive campaign. Right. So I think they essentially just have to go negative. No, they do. Uh, which, and you've, already, you've yeah. already
0: seen this on her hard part. So mm-hmm. she... They've made a tactical decision on the Clinton campaign. They've they've decided that enough is enough. After 270 days of not doing a full-blown press conference, they have to engage more with the press. So she is now putting reporters on the same plane with her. So they're all flying around now as one happy family. And (laughs) starting yesterday, she came out, it's the plane's divided into three compartments. It's 737, they've chopped it up in three parts. Uh, She's up in front with her staff. There's a little middle section. It's like it's like first class economy plus an economy. The middle (laughs) section, Secret Service, and then the back section is is the press. So she every day now she has started to go back and engage with the press for a little bit of time. Uh, But it's interesting when you watch her in action, so she will give an answer to a question, and each answer has a pivot and the pivot invariably takes you back to something you don't like about donald trump He needs to release his tax records. He's a bully. He has the wrong temper for the job So oh, I think you're absolutely right I think just at the end of the day She's just gonna bring it home as to as to reminding you as to why you cannot have donald trump as president Not talking about what she wants to do per se but just saying consider the alternative Well, in
1: my usual role where instead of you getting to ask all the questions now I'm gonna <laughs> ask one and that one is uh, to both of you Seems to me, given this uh, undecideds that we've talked about in whatever form you want to put them, won't vote, et cetera, Mm -hmm. uh, looks to me like the September 26th first debate is uh, gonna be heavily watched and uh, could make a difference. So what what are your opinions of that?
2: I I go back to um, uh, when Arnold was running the first time in California. And uh, the polls were showing uh, he was considerably behind. Uh, if you remember, there was Arianna Huffington and um, Cruz Bustamante, right. and McClintock, the conservative Republican. And he was running well behind in the polls, although our YouGov poll, which was an Internet poll, showed him dead on. And after the first debate, suddenly the the telephone polls showed him in the lead. And what the interpretation was, Arnold had sort of showed himself to be a credible candidate, that there were people who wanted to vote for Arnold but just just couldn't admit it. Our interpretation was that we're going to vote for him all along. But nevertheless, if you can establish your credibility in the debate, which he did, and that's what I think Trump would have to do. Trump would have to actually look presidential. He would have to allay some people's fears that he is just nothing but a narcissistic bully. And so I think probably I would imagine Hillary will try to get his goat, uh, try to get him to sort of go off the be, – be Trump. Yeah, <laughs> and, precisely. Uh, yeah, I, think yeah. That, I think Mo's
0: exactly right. It's, uh, for all the talk about Trump possibly blowing mm-hmm. off one or all three of the debates, I don't see how he can – possibly do that and have any chance of getting elected. He has to debate, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the moderator choices, they're all reasonable people. There's nobody no. to look at and think this is a stacked deck. Uh, so he has to show mm-hmm. up. And you're right, he has to he has to come across as somebody who could be credible mm-hmm. as President of the United States, which means having some credible, thoughtful answers, but also how he conducts himself for however long the debates mm-hmm. are, an hour, an hour and a half, however long they go for uh, mm-hmm. this time around. But there's a challenge for her as well, and that's the Al Gore challenge. And that's being on the same stage with somebody who you know you're smarter than at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. somebody who you know you're way more qualified for the job than they are, somebody who just really looked down upon in a lot of ways. And remember, this came back to haunt Gore terribly in the year 2000 where he Mm -hmm. just, remember he famously would sigh during the debates and would roll his eyes and just, you know, act like just the smarmy kid in the class he didn't like. So she, Mm -hmm. you know, Part of part of the debate prep with her is going to be just saying, "Look at you know, you need to find what ways you're right to really kind of kind of prick him and get under his skin." And there are easy ways to do mm-hmm. it when you question his wealth, for example, that always gets his temper up. But then, secondly, it's going to you know, have to say, "Look, Mrs. Clinton, you're going to be on the on the attack here. You're going to be attacked yourself for you know quite a period of time. Yeah. So be ready for it and just you know mm-hmm. smile and take it all in stride and just you know push it off." So yeah, yeah.
1: On, on that one,
0: I, yeah.
1: uh, I I was sort of amazed when they. Brought up the sexism issue on Trump, and he immediately turned on. What are you talking about? Look at your <laughs> husband. I mean, and that shut him up. That was just right. over. So I, when I think about this, I think about. Well, I'm glad I'm not debating him, uh, because he'll. I mean, he will. Any flaw you have, he he'll he'll just go after it.
0: And who knows
2: that turns out. That's right, there are no boundaries. with Trump. Yeah. She has to prepare for almost anything.
0: Yeah. Actually and, I'm glad uh, I'm not the person uh, doing debate prep with her. Because <laughs> that, that poor person is going to stand up next to her and insult her in ways she's not being insulted. <laughs> but, uh. yeah. so. I imagine
2: her staff will show the Saturday Night Live parody of the first debate. Oh you have to. Uh, and they'll, they'll show what how it could go bad. Yeah. Getting back to the volatility uh, thing mm-hmm. by the way, the fact that both candidates are viewed in such negative terms means it probably doesn't take much to, to move some people away from them. Mm-hmm. It's not that you're positively disposed toward that candidate. So we always talk about October surprises, and they're always potentially out there. But possibly the impact of October surprises this year could be greater if they come, come along. Yeah. That's, that's
0: a good point. Mm-hmm. Something that's not been vol- volatile, by the way, has been the presidency itself. We're in this rather unique stretch of American history where when Obama finishes his term, we will have had three consecutive two-term presidents. It's mm-hmm. only the second time in the 240 years of this republic we've had this. The previous time was presidents three, four, and five, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, uh, part of that time being the so-called era of good feelings. This was America after the Treaty of Ghent, time of peace, economic growth, and you had rather stability in national elections. Monroe runs for re-election in 1820. He runs unopposed, gets every electoral vote. Um, fast forward now to 42, 43, and 44, and it's not the era of good feelings. I was reading a document over the weekend in which a very brilliant man called it, quote, an era of tenuous majorities. <laughs> Who was that author, Mo Fiorina? What is Uh, he getting at?
2: Well, uh, I'll back away from the brilliant part, but uh, Mm -hmm. uh, just looking at a little history, this will be in the the first Hoover essay uh, posted tomorrow, I believe.
0: And Actually, before we get Uh, to this, let me just clarify. So you have written a series of essays, which the Hoover Institution will be publishing each week between now and the election. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the overall theme of the essays is...
2: Yes, the overall theme is that we are in an era of tenuous majorities, and by that I mean essentially uh, control of all three elective institutions at the federal level is almost up for grabs in every election. The the Democrats have a bit of an edge in the presidency, but as we say, Republicans have had it as well, and there have been no landslides like we've had in in previous eras. The uh, Republicans have a bit of an edge in the House, but the Democrats uh, had a 78-seat majority only eight years ago, and the Senate, of course, is up for grabs in every election. And consequently, there is just very little stability at the federal level, that uh, every election is a fight for control. And I attribute this to, to two things uh, working in combination. Uh, in the, the, just to the argument is that uh, we have two minority parties. We have n- neither party really appeals to a majority of the public, mm-hmm. essentially taking turn on an account. It's one-third Democratic, one-third Republican, one-third independent. And uh, secondly, these parties are sorted in a way they're not like European parties, so the Democrats are liberal, the Republicans are conservative. And so when each gets in office, they appeal to their base. They govern in a way the base um, would like, emphasizing base priorities and base positions. And the result is that the the sort of muddled middle that supported the winners in the last election thinks, basically, I didn't vote for that, and they desert them in the next election. Consequently, the majorities these parties try to to build are very fleeting. Mm
0: Now, I remember when George Bush was elected in 2000, and Karl Rove talked very confidently about this beginning, the beginning of a Republican century. He was on the way McKinley model of things. Then Obama was mm-hmm. elected in 2008, and James Carville turns right around and he writes a book called 40 More Years How Democrats Rule the Next Generation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What do these guys get wrong?
2: <laughs> what they get wrong is, is misinterpreting their electoral victory as a mandate. Right. Uh, a mandate for the policies that everyone they know in the, in the party uh, supports, but uh, a whole lot of people who voted for them uh, didn't know much about what they supported or didn't support it on balance and not the whole thing, supported more moderate positions. All you have to do is beat the other guy. You don't have This doesn't have to be every voter's perfect position. It just has to be better than the other one. And so I think they vastly uh, overestimate their mandate. The American public doesn't give mandates. The American public hires you on probation, and they renew your contract if they like what you've done, basically. And the second thing is I think they, because the majorities are so fleeting, that there's a sense uh, in which you have to do it now because you may lose the next election. So Pelosi pushes through health care, even though the result is Republican control of the House for probably the next decade, they may never have another shot. And so I think the the parties now approach governing with that sort of short-term mentality that if we don't do it now, we'll never have another chance to do it.
1: I I, I think that's a good point. The last person who actually uh, tried to do things bipartisan was George W. Bush, uh, when he was not really he didn't have the majority as you know so the first thing he did was he got that education bill through which supported by Ted Kennedy then along comes 9-11 and, uh, and, and then as the opposition to the war in Iraq grew and then in 2004 when he won he did exactly what Mo said he put the uh, we're going to privatize social security up and uh, that was uh, his base, mm-hmm. and and that didn't work. And then you saw what happened in two thousand and six. So I I actually uh, agree with uh, Mo's thesis, and uh, I think people should look
0: forward to reading the other uh, essays. Right. If you look back at these three presidents, they have one thing in common: the last three who've been reelected, their reelections were rather bitter affairs directed against their opponents. In other words, Mm -hmm. when Obama ran in 2012 for re-election and Clinton in 96 and Bush in 2004, I don't know if it was so much saying reaffirm my agenda vote for me here's what we're going to do they ran very smart strategic campaigns in terms of getting the jump on their opponents and making it a negative referendum against the people they're running against which i think is a very effective way to get re-elected in this day and age it may be a very effective way for hillary clinton to get elected in 2016 but one thing that does is it strikes me as it completely queers your second term because you're now you're not coming in with a tailwind and agenda and the american people have spoken here's what we're going to do Instead, as American people saying, oh, we really don't like the other guy that much. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, in each case also, we have a president whose first term was not exactly an unalloyed success. Yes. And so it's not like Reagan, where you could say it's morning again in America. Right. And it's not like Eisenhower. It's not like uh, even, even Nixon. <laughs> Things weren't great in 72, but they were a whole lot better than they were in 68. And, and so I think essentially you're, you're forced to run that kind of campaign when you don't have a really good positive record to run on, uh, which we're, of course, in the same situation now.
0: Right. Now, from yeah. 1954 to 1992, it was a very different ballgame.
2: Republicans tended
0: to win presidential mm-hmm. elections. And I think with the exception of the six years that the Republicans mm-hmm. had the Senate and the, uh, from uh, 80 to 86 under Reagan, mm-hmm. it was a Democratic Congress. Mm-hmm. But now things have changed. It seems as though we're affirming Democratic presidents, but we're entrusting Congress with Republicans. So have the, have the parties changed? Have the people changed? What's, what's going on here?
2: Well, I, I don't think the parallel is as, as close as some people say, as, as I make the, the point mm-hmm. in the essays, that um, the Republicans really owned the presidency. Uh, take away Jimmy Carter, and I think we got six straight Republican victories, including some by landslides. 7 out of 10. Yeah, yeah now yeah, and 7 out of 10 in the whole period whereas we're in an era now where they're, they're, they're close. These are 52 53% uh, margins, and I don't think the Republicans ever think they're out of it in the same way the Democrats knew they were out of it in the, this earlier period. And as I say, um, you know, people attribute the Republican edge in the House to the gerrymandering, which most political science research says is a small part of the problem, really. Um, and the Senate, as I say, is up for grabs. And so I think it's it's a much more Competitive, much more contingent elections are much more contingent on who's going to control. You knew who was going to control the House in the 70s and 80s. There was no chance the Democrats were going to lose the House, whereas so, now it's sort of always, even now, a little up in the air.
1: I, I agree with that. In, in fact, the, um, there's some structural reasons for it. One, one, of course, is that we now have, depending upon how you calculate it, 60 to 80 seats that are majority-minority seats that are either uh, African-American or Hispanic uh, districts, Latino districts. And that means that of the districts that are left, Republicans have an advantage, which gives them a little bit of advantage. And on the uh, presidential side, the Democrats have a little bit of an advantage because you know they're going to win New York, Illinois, and California. So there's some institutional reasons, but they're not as important as Uh, I think the point Mo made earlier about uh, something's going on with American voters. We don't have a majority party as we did with the Democrats dominated for a long time. We have uh, two minority parties, and I think a bunch of people in the middle who aren't happy with either party's base.
0: No, I think you're right. Uh, It looks like we're in in for more majoritarian instability, as you like to call it, in the years ahead. Let's say the Senate flips Democratic. Let's say they come in with a 51-49 Senate, just to throw a number out there. Well, if you look at the 2018 races, I think it's something like 24 Democrats up for Mm -hmm. re-election, six or eight Republicans, Mm -hmm. most of whom are safe. It's probably going to flip again. Mm -hmm. And then if, let's say, Hillary Clinton is elected in 2016, Mm -hmm. gee, how is she going to run for Mm re-election by getting the jump on whoever happens to get the Republican nod Mm -hmm. and portraying that person as going to destroying Social Security, Medicare. You can see these things coming a mile away. So, how do we break this fever? And it just seems we're just caught in this rut where the presidencies run a certain way in terms of elections, re-elections, and Congress seems to be forever tumbling over itself.
2: Well, um, historically, I I, I make the point in this essay, what this era looks like is the late 19th century, uh, what historians call the period of no decision, when it was exactly the same Congress just flipped every election, and we had the same kind of instability. And it came to an end when we had a successful presidency, basically. The Republicans took over and governed in a way that the population approved. And I see basically, I don't see any institutional solution to this. People talk about gerrymandering reform and electoral college reform and all this. I think many of these things wouldn't hurt, but they're not going to really help much. It's going to come, there's going to be an electoral change. Somebody has got to come in and do the job in a way the American public says, that's good. Right. Yeah, we
1: I, I agree with that I also don't think this is just a peculiarly American problem. This is a problem across Europe. If you look at, uh, take a look at the French election, the Italian elections. There's nobody that's popular, and none of the political parties in any of the OECD countries has solved the problem of what do you do with a diminishing industrial base, what happens when you can't put the party, a majority party together. Uh, it just has not, it just has not been solved. And we shouldn't think of it as distinctively American. America's uh, an example of it, but it's, it's, across the, it's across the OECD countries. All advanced economies
0: are facing these problems. Yeah, It seems to me that Hillary Clinton could easily fix this. Words you're not going to hear often on this podcast, by the way. But you just think <laughs> no, about it. The- I don't know what to say. <laughs> that <laughs> stunned look on your face. Yeah. No, let's just let's just game this out for a minute. So she she is elected, and it's a bitter, difficult election. And she comes in, and let's say she comes across the finish line with throw a number out there, Dave, 45 percent, something like that. Kind of what her husband got in nineteen ninety two, and maybe something close to electoral votes as well. Now she has to struggle to create the illusion of a mandate because she doesn't have the popular votes to back it up, though she does have the electoral votes. So what does she do? She can either go out and claim things that just aren't true. The American people have spoken for X, Y, and Z when in fact they've rejected Donald Trump as much as they've elected her. Or she can get to work and try to do things a little differently in Washington take advantage of an easy opportunity, which is reach out to Paul Ryan, who I imagine if the Republicans lose this election, it's a time for a lot of soul searching for Republicans. Republicans can concern about the future of themselves as a national party, given the rather rotten numbers they're going to have with black voters and with Hispanic voters. And in theory, she and he could sit down and do some things, maybe not huge dramatic things in the first six months to first year for a job, but they could show progress working together. And I'm just saying theoretically it's possible.
1: Well, I, I've been uh, trying to think about uh, that, and what I tried to think about, which was the hardest part, was what, what, what are the set of issues right. on which they could agree to do okay. something? And everything I thought about, when I thought about it a little deeper, went down the tube. So it seemed to me, one thing, what about rebuilding the infrastructure? Right. Not just bridges, but what about, what about making it possible to use my cell phone here in California as easily as I can use the same cell phone in China? Mm-hmm. Why, why, not, why aren't we doing those sort of things? Think of the 50s when Eisenhower built the highway system and the economy ultimately benefited for it. I, I think that what you said is possible, but the hard part is thinking about what are the set of issues that you could get them to come together on and agree on and I think that's pretty hard.
0: Well, well, well Mo, here's, here's the trick, Mo. Uh, it seems to me that all these people are going to have to decide what's in my best interest. So she mm-hmm. has to decide, is it in my best interest to reach out to Paul Ryan? Paul Ryan has to decide, is it in my best interest to reach out to her? And I think we're in an era right now where a lot of p- politicians are deciding that when it comes to bipartisanship, when it comes to thinking outside the box, doing things out of character, it's not in my best interest. Why? I'm going to get primaried. I'm going to get mm-hmm. destroyed on the drudge report. I'm going to get beat, eaten up alive by the Tea Party. We saw what happened mm-hmm. in the Republican primaries with the gang of Ada Marco Rubio. it just ate him alive. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's the danger uh, mm-hmm. in the scenario you sketched with Hillary Clinton approaching Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. is the people who already are holding their nose, the Bernie Sanders supporters, and going to vote for that right. immediately any move toward reaching out to Ryan is going to be met by charges of treason. And meanwhile, if Ryan makes a move in that direction (laughs) you know we've already seen what the Republican base does to people so it's going to be a tough tightrope for her to walk
0: I don't know it just strikes me as a dilemma let's say that she comes in and by Mm -hmm. some miracle she gets Mm -hmm. both a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House then what will they do? Well, it'll be the Tennessee will be the same as with Obama in 2009. They're going to want to shoot the moon.
2: Mm-hmm. They yeah. do
0: gigantic things when, in fact, small incremental things working with Republicans would be in mm-hmm. the best interest for both their party long term but the nation as well. But we, we shouldn't forget that in
1: 1992, uh, 96, I'm sorry, when it became clear. So the Republicans took over the Congress in 1994, and it became clear uh, pretty, with about five to six weeks to go, that Bob Dole was not gonna be re-elected president, or not be elected president of the United States, sorry, and Bill Clinton would be Mm re-elected. The Republican Party, with Dole's consent, uh, changed the campaign strategy and said don't, and Dole spent an unbelievable amount of time working in districts where house races were uh, flippable, and basically said don't give Clinton, don't give him an open hand, don't give him an open hand, don't let him shoot the moon. And uh, I think there are a lot of Republicans thinking about, uh, thinking about that right now. So uh, there are strategies by which you can, and, and in some cases, there are gonna be some people who would certainly prefer uh, the Mrs. Clinton, or if Trump got elected or Clinton got elected, neither one of them be allowed to uh, shoot the moon.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed.
0: No, it's interesting, you look around the country right now and you look at a state like Ohio or Pennsylvania where you think, if she carries that state, the Republican incumbent's probably going down the drain. But Rob Portman's actually doing pretty mm-hmm. well in Ohio. I think the New York Times gives yep. him an 80% chance yeah. of re-election. Mm-hmm. That right. sounds a little, a little lofty mm-hmm. if you ask me, but still, I think he's the odds-on favorite. Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, who I would have guessed mm-hmm. a year ago probably was a dead man mm-hmm. walking. He's holding his own in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Pennsylvania close, as well. Yeah. So you're mm-hmm. seeing voters, it seems to me breaking off the presidential election, but then the Senate. They're actually looking at the two differently. This, how, how, odd would it, how odd would it be, Mo, if, if somehow we got a Democratic president but a Republican Congress returned with her?
2: I think there are many people who, <laughs> given the alternative, either a Republican <laughs> running the whole government or Democrats running the whole right. government, would say at this point doing nothing is probably preferable to what doing what either one of them would like to do.
1: We've seen a, yeah. uh, a decrease in the amount of split-ticket voting. Uh, compared to the post-World War II era where you had a lot of, uh, the period where you talk about you had 7 out of 10 Democrat, uh, Republican wins in the presidency and the Congress was uh, Democrat most of that time. This election is uh, going to be one where that notion of, split-ticket voting is declining is, uh, I think, upper grabs. I think there's going to be more split-ticket voting than it people It hit a record think. low in 2012,
0: didn't yeah. it, yeah. presidentially? Yeah.
2: yeah, and I argue in these essays that a lot of pundits have drawn the wrong uh, conclusion from these trends that their assumption is voters are becoming more partisan and less willing to split their tickets. And I think what you have to look at is the candidates. The candidates are becoming more similar. All the Democrats are liberals, all the Republicans are conservative. There's just not as much reason to split your ticket anymore as, say, when Ronald Reagan's running for re-election. People think, well, I really like Reagan, but my Democrat is a perfectly moderate, reasonable guy. I'll vote for him. And now it's just basically they're both liberals or they're both conservatives, and so why split so,
1: so the analogy that Professor Fiorina used to explain this to me at one point was, suppose that my wife and I always go to a uh, dinner where there's a vegetarian meal or some meat I don't like, so I always vote vegetarian, I always, I'm always saying I'll take the vegetarian alternative, but now you give me a different, now you give me an election in which, or a restaurant in which there's a different alternative, I may choose something differently. So the claim is if the parties are giving you left and right, you've got to choose between the two of them, but if you gave me a centrist mm-hmm. candidate, uh, I might choose that one.
0: Pretty Clinton. good analogy. Is that yeah, in the essay? It's in the first essay. This oh, is near right, the end of the go. first essay. You, you yes. actually read it. Yeah. Well, yes, <laughs> I have. Yeah. So Clinton and Trump are not vegan and meat. There it is. Can, <laughs> yeah. can we go somewhere else to eat? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> you can't. That's, 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 that's the problem. This yeah. is the only restaurant in town. Yeah. <laughs> and there's your two choices. Yeah, that's the, You're in Wetchier, yeah. Kansas.
0: Yeah. There's one restaurant. <laughs> I don't want to put you guys on the spot, but there has historically, can you just think off the top of your head? just a more bitter choice for the American people than these two? I don't know if we have to go in the way back machine. It's yeah. it's an apples and oranges question, mm-hmm. in fairness, because you can say, well, geez, in the election of 1828, it was a mm-hmm. terrible choice. But people back then had not been looking at these candidates on TV for 25 years, and they were not mm-hmm. on social media, and they were not on the Internet. They didn't have this daily barrage. Mm-hmm.
1: I think mckinley uh, Bryan in 1896 yeah. was an election in which uh, yeah. people were not happy with the choices. It was, uh, there are pretty clear distinctions. Pro, uh, Republicans were pro-gold, uh, uh, pro-tariff, right. uh, pro-expansionism, and William Jennings Brown was mm-hmm. anti-gold, uh, anti-tariff, anti-expansionism, and uh, there was not much. Uh, there was not much love. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, the best book on the subject uh, describes them as two arm. The, the organization was like an army organization yeah. against each other. So mm-hmm. that's one.
0: Mm-hmm. Six, sixty-eight. Yeah. Sixty-eight comes to mind.
2: Yeah, sixty-eight is yeah. right up there. Yeah, yeah. eighteen sixty. Yeah. Four candidates, yeah. Yeah. and followed by civil war. You know, and, and hopefully, we're, when hopefully Lincoln, we're not there. You know, yeah. when Lincoln
1: was coming into <laughs> Washington D.C. Uh, as you recall, they had to hide what train he was coming in on because they were worried about him being assassinated on the way in. So I, I think that Americans ought not, you know, there's a tendency uh, to say, oh, you know, we've never seen this. One of the nice things about being older, as Fiorina and I are, as opposed to our host, uh, the, the fact is we, we've seen stuff like this before, 1968. It's yes. not, yeah. it's not. It's mm-hmm. probably not the end of the American
0: political system. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the guy who worked with Nixon in 68 on his television, Roger Ailes, who is now helping Donald mm-hmm. Trump with debate prep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So all things being circular in politics. Final question, guys. We have to give a shout out to Dave Brady, who it kills me to say this because on the last podcast, he made a very astute point. He said that if Hillary Clinton gets seven to eight points ahead in this election, the election will tighten because people will look at this and think, my God, you might actually become president. So here we are now at a four point race and Dave called it. Do you guys see her lead mushrooming at all? Do you think we're just going to be locked into this four points, tightening a little bit, widening a little bit? Kind we'll of go up and, and down. down. Yeah. As I said, I think it reminded me
1: of the uh, hershenson barbara Boxer uh, Senate race, mm-hmm. where if Tom Campbell had won the nomination, I think he would have been elected, but uh, as, as people thought about oh my God, he'll be senator, then it went to her, and then they, oh, here, she'll be mm-hmm. senator, and it went back to him, so mm-hmm. I think we're in
2: We're in for more of it. Yeah, with 30% still out there refusing to commit, just the possibilities of, just the logical possibilities of movements up and down are, are greater than they've been in most years.
0: Okay.
1: Boy, thanks for that boost. That's rare. I don't usually get stuff like that. (laughs) It won't happen often, I (laughs) promise you. Yeah, I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Pole Position, a Hoover Institution podcast. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the daily report. It provides you with the best of what Hoover offers, studies, analyses, commentaries, including Mofi Arena's essays, all sent to your inbox five days a week. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. Thanks for sitting in with us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.